Welcome to the Energy Nerd Show, powered by Synapse Energy Economics and Climbable.org. Energy Nerd Show. Hey, Jeannie. Yeah, friend. Who's our guest on the Nerd Show today? Today, we have our friend, neighbor, and my former boss, John Howe. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? Doing well. We're good. How are you? I'm doing great. Where do y'all work together? Oh, we worked together at the DPU. John was a public utilities commissioner. I was commission staff. Actually, you were the chair of the commission, I believe. That's right. It's been, been a long time, Jeannie. That was in the 90s when we were doing the big uh, utilities restructuring process. But after that, I spent the last 20 odd years of my career working with early stage energy technology companies. So um, it's great to see you again. Thanks. Great. You too. Great to see you, John. Um, what are we talking about today? Well, I want to talk about a topic that's really occupied me a lot in the last 15 years or so. And that is, as we make this transition to clean energy, we're going to require a lot of space, a lot of land. And I think it is a real interesting conversation that I think we can have is around just how big are the land requirements likely to be and how do they look really in historic context? This is something I got interested in, I'd say about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, I want to begin by reciting one of the most impactful quotes I think I've ever heard in any kind of uh, discussion of energy. This was a Scottish geologist, a fellow named Ian Stewart. He teaches at the University of Plymouth in England, and he does presentations for the BBC. And on a show he produced about 15 years ago, he made the assertion that it would take the Earth about three million years to produce the fossil energy that mankind consumes to support one year of economic activity. And when I heard that, it kind of blew me away and put the whole energy transition in, uh, in a whole different context for me. Where I want to go with it, Bruce and Jeannie, is we are really in kind of the third act of an energy drama that goes all the way back to the beginning of history. And I think we're emerging from a very brief moment in time when humankind, we've relied upon this distilled energy, really time in a bottle, that we've been consuming in the space of two human lifetimes. And now we're talking about migrating toward using uh, energy flows in real time. And uh, it's, it is going to take a lot of space. It's a transition we have to make for energy reasons, for environmental reasons, uh, to preserve the health and ensure the livability of our planet. I've shared with you a couple of graphics that display how we use our land today. And I wanted to reel the clock back and, and go back in time to start the conversation. When we think about land use requirements to meet the energy needs of civilization, there was this first act, this first period of time, which was all of human history, from the beginning of history really up to the early 19th century. And you know, people didn't move any faster. The armies in Mesopotamia and Egypt moved about as fast as the armies of Washington and Napoleon. And think of that, all that period of time, we lived with meager energy supplies, we grew wood in forests, we grew feed for draft animals. And in all that time, it's estimated by energy historians that about 25% to 30% of all the land, say in an area like Western Europe, was required to supply that energy requirement. 
Now we've gone into this second act, just over the space of a couple of human lifetimes, where we've derived the bulk of our energy from coal, oil, and gas that were all accumulated over eons of time, 300 million years, to capture and distill that energy into a usable form. And I know there are a lot of people that think, how can human civilization continue and exist? How can we thrive without continuing to make use of these fossil fuels? But I think those of us that are close to the industry know that from an energy standpoint, the fuel stocks are running low. From an environmental standpoint, even more importantly, we're simply running out of sinks. The Earth's environment, the atmosphere, the oceans cannot sustain more carbon emissions in the future. So the question is just how much land is going to be required to support a reasonable level of human thriving in this new era. And so I think it's important for us to recognize after 5,000 years of that first act and just a, literally a couple of human lifetimes of that second act, now we're moving into this third act where we have to figure out how can we survive and have a thriving way of life, or at least be adequately supplied with energy resources to meet the needs of human society. So I shared with you a couple of graphics that show just how we make use of our current supplies. There was one, I think, very interesting, very good slide from this study out of Princeton University a couple of years ago, uh, the Andlinger Center, which I think is one of the very best of a number of presentations I've seen in the last decade on this topic. And uh, the Princeton experts on this topic concluded that we will need somewhere in the range of about 2% of our landmass to meet our energy needs in the form of solar, community solar, rooftop solar, other solar collection systems, and also to provide the area for the infrastructure for uh, wind energy. Now, wind does occupy a lot of land. It, it precludes other uses in the area around wind farms. But the actual land area that is required to support turbine foundations and the immediate area around turbines is actually quite small. So wind farms are actually quite compatible with other forms of economic activity like growing crops or rangeland for animals and so forth. So there will be a large visual footprint. There will be a large area required for spacing around uh, wind farms, as anyone who's been to see the vast wind farms in the Midwest would recognize. But the actual amount of space that's required is relatively small. So, you know, I think of how we use land when we look at these charts and we see that, you know, roughly a quarter of our nation is forested and about a third of it is pasture land and range land. Another 20% uh, is crop land, and there's relatively small amount in urban uses. We are going to have to get creative, and we're going to have to really keep pedal to the metal to ensure that adequate amounts of land are made available for these forms of energy if we're, if we're going to continue to accelerate the penetration of wind and solar into the future. But if the renewable energy that we build in America in the next decade is um, compatible with cows, then it seems like there's plenty of cow pasture and range, uh, for example, shown on, the, on that one map. There ought to be adequate amount of space, but there will be this visual impact. And this is one of the critical things we're going to have to 
recognize as we emerge from the era where we relied on fossil energy production out of coal mines and oil wells, which are relatively compact, and we've generated the energy in central generating stations, which are, again, relatively compact. We're headed in the direction of an energy system that is certainly much cleaner, will be healthier, but it will be more visually expansive in the environment. And that's something we're just going to have to need to accept if we're going to have a successful transition. And that really is the concern I have. You know, 20 years ago, I think there was a real issue. Would wind and solar be economic? Would they be technically mature enough to support this transition? You know, I think beginning around a decade ago, it became apparent to me that the technology is there. We have the technology today that could support a transition to a predominantly renewables-based system. And it's economically competitive. Technologically mature, economically cost competitive. In fact, in many areas of the country, wind and solar are now the cheapest source of incremental supply. But this other key issue is, will we have the fortitude? Will we have the social cohesion? Will we have the agreement to allocate the necessary land to ensure that we can make this transition? I think that's going to become a critical, will remain a critical issue for the next few decades. And it is going to require that we have a supportive legislative and regulatory framework. There are areas where we're going to need to ensure that solar energy can be produced as a matter of right. It really ought to be included in building codes in a a good deal of new construction. We've seen rapid progress in the deployment of community solar projects. And I know you've had guests talk about community solar as an exciting new field of enterprise. It's a way to achieve large blocks of incremental solar capacity at much lower cost than doing it rooftop by rooftop. But the barriers to siting of wind and solar, we are going to need to tackle them and get over the resistance to the deployment of new technologies. So, John, in Texas, where I'm from, and in Oklahoma, where I have a lot of relatives, we see a lot of ranchers and other landholders putting wind turbines up to just be able to afford to keep the land in the family. And when you talk about that social cohesion piece, I feel like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the economics were already good enough in West Texas, right? And again, on this ranch land where people aren't living right next to a wind turbine. But when you think about the other things that have to come together for this to continue, what form is the resistance taking, that resistance that you're thinking of? I think there is both. There's the NIMBY resistance in in some communities. There's also sort of the cultural resistance to new ways of doing things. Obviously, there's a very strong constituency for preserving the fossil energy industry. And I think we have to recognize the extent to which existing rules, regulations, and laws provide implicit subsidies and support for our continued reliance on fossil energy. So those that resist the transition to renewables tend to emphasize the explicit subsidies that we see in some laws and regulatory frameworks without acknowledging the implicit subsidies that have existed for 100 years to support the ongoing reliance on fossil energy. I think there's another factor, and that is 
If you go back really 500 years, we've been through a number of major energy transitions from wood to sail. The Dutch were the initial leaders in sail. Then the British uh, began to really develop the coal industry in the 18th into the early 19th century. I think the U.S. really was the first country to become a leader in the oil industry in the late part of the 19th century, but really the great majority of oil that the world has consumed has been within the lifetimes of those of us that are here today since the early 1950s. So every one of those transitions, it took decades, it took 50 to 100 years to effect the transition from one form of energy to the next. But when that transition happened, typically what we've seen, you know, the Dutch were the most powerful merchants in the 17th century. The British when coal became the standard and the, the, the next frontier in energy, Britain ruled the waves, Britannia ruled the waves. America, it became the American century when oil became the dominant form of energy in the late 19th, early 20th century. And now today, I think there's a real contest to be had. Who is going to be the leading power in the 21st century based on clean energy? And I think this is one of the reasons it's so important that America onshore a lot of its renewable energy uh, production capacity. I mean, so many clean energy technologies we have pioneered. We have been the country where the technologies were invented and first scaled up. And then other countries have come in and taken the technology to large-scale commercial success. I think it's time for us to realize if we're going to lead the world in the next 50, 100 years, we need to be leaders in the development and deployment and advancement of these clean energy technologies. What's your take on whether regulated utilities are going to be innovative, creative, and leaders in this uh, transition? Well, I think this is one of the reasons it was so important 30 years ago when we restructured electric utilities. I think one of the great consequences of that transition is there was now much more room for innovation for small-scale actors. And I think we have seen in the last 30 years dramatically faster innovation in the utilities sector in the production of energy than we did during the decades before restructuring. So we absolutely are going to need a much stronger, better connected, more dynamic, more flexible power grid to move power around because that's going to be one of the important natural characteristics of the grid of tomorrow. Power is going to come from different regions depending upon weather patterns, uh, depending upon where is the wind, where is the sun, and we're going to have to get creative with storage. And it's going to be a more complicated system to operate. And that's where the utilities are going to play an essential role. But I think the market that has come about has really helped to accelerate the adoption and penetration of dramatically better technologies in wind and solar in the last decade or so. Yeah, so it's all of that. <laughs> we need all of that. I was looking, John, at the uh, Anlinger Center, the maps, and I was wondering if you could uh, talk more about that. But I was thinking maybe start with the, you're talking about who's going to be leaders. And I'm seeing a picture here where West Virginia is full of solar energy. And the <laughs> Don't misinterpret it, Bruce. The idea of the map is the amount of land that will be required to support America's energy needs. If we look at the wind requirement and the solar requirement, all of the solar 
deployed across the entire country, if you were to put it together in one plot of land, it would cover the entire state of West Virginia. But it's going to need to be very diffuse. It's going to need to be close to where market demand is located. There are other graphs in this uh, Princeton report, and I'd be happy to share them. We're going to have solar in small increments everywhere. Now, wind will tend to be concentrated in the heartland, which is the windiest region. Those are the areas where you have a lot of rangeland, cropland, where this dual use is possible. But I do think, for instance, here in New England, one of the exciting areas of innovation we've seen in the last few years is the emergence of this practice of agrivoltaics, where you see the joint use of the same land for both crop production and solar arrays. And in fact, there are parts of the country, for instance, the Southwest, where through the creative deployment of solar arrays, you can actually diversify the range of crops that are feasible because you can create shading and different microclimates so you can actually grow new kinds of crops and enhance the yield on a given plot of land. So this will be a way that we can co-produce energy and food and uh, other products to meet our needs and actually keep more of our open land in those economically productive uses instead of allowing our tracts of farmland to be sold off and, and uh, developed for housing. It does mean we'll see more urbanized development close to existing cities. It's only in the last 50, you know, 70 years or so that we've had the suburbanization, the sprawl around our city centers across the country. And I think we've seen that pattern reverse somewhat in the last couple of decades. So changes are ahead for us in what our landscapes are going to look like. But I would expect, based on all of the trends that we talked about, that we're going to be seeing a lot more wind and solar in the landscape. And we're simply going to need to get used to that. But what a marvelous opportunity it will be uh, to clean up our energy system and generate job opportunities and make our economy more competitive. You know, I was looking at your map, the map of land use, current land use, and uh, golf courses use an enormous amount of land in America. And it, it seems like it's roughly equal to the amount of solar we need. So I, I was wondering, can, can we put all the solar panels on the golf courses distributed uh, near load? Well, uh, actually, if you look at the, this uh, Bloomberg map, there is down along the coast of South Carolina, you can see the areas that are actually used for golf courses. It's not super big. It's smaller than West Virginia. So um, I'm not knocking too hard on golf courses or cemeteries. Um, we had uh, Jamie Van Nostrand on the show a couple months ago talking about his book about West Virginia and their energy uh, not transition. Yes, stagnation. I saw that. Now Jamie's coming up to, uh, to our neck of the woods to be the chair of the DPU. I was, I was wondering if you have any advice for a, a new DPU commissioner in Mass or chair of the commission in Massachusetts. Oh boy, you know, it is so much more of a public role these days than it was 30 years ago. Jeannie, you'll remember Janet and I worked together quite closely. We used to marvel at how much change we were putting in place, how much the actions that we were undertaking were going to change and hopefully improve the energy system and support a more innovative economy relative to the amount of public attention that our agency received. These days, public utility commissions are under a microscope. It's going to be a very challenging role, but it's an exciting opportunity. I know for him, 
I think it's one of the best jobs in government. It was a great experience for me, and I hope it's a great experience for him. It's a very, very important role these days. It's so great to see you, and it's great to hear all this. I, I, it's, it's really interesting, and let's keep up with what you're, what you're doing. You're welcome to come back on the show anytime. Okay. Thanks, John. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jeannie. Bye. Bye-bye. Check out the show notes for visuals and links for more info on the topics discussed. You can find the Energy Nerd Show on social media pretty much everywhere at Energy Nerd Show or on our website at energynerdshow.com. Thanks for listening.